This episode of the Chat with Claire Fordham is brought to you by Paper Love Boutique, the greeting card line that inspires us to send a card, not just a text. Greetings, dear listener from London, England. I'm here in the freezing cold to see my daughter and some friends, and I'm heading south to Hailing Island to spend a couple of weeks with my mum, where I'll be watching multiple episodes of Bargain Hunt and Murders in the English Countryside. Thanks to the miracle and magic of the internet, you don't have to miss episodes of The Chat with Claire Fordham while I'm away. Here's one I prepared earlier. Musician and singer-songwriter Jeff Young. Put the kettle on, Tiago. We simply must applaud them. The Chat Podcast with Claire Fordham. Keep and chat do you see yourself how would you describe yourself musically apart from being a great guy well because I've always had ideas got to try to write songs even before I knew more musically I'd have to say I consider myself a singer songwriter um, even though I haven't made much of a living doing that but that's what drives me that's what makes me want to to practice that's what keeps me doing it probably more than anything so music is extremely important to you. I mean, it's vital. It is, you are music. I mean, obviously you're a happy family man. But I, when I think of you, I think of, I can't imagine you not having music in your life. How do you think your life would be if you didn't have music in it? It would be very different because I tried a few things, like any, um, any person, particularly any black man, would to kind of make a living. Like what? Well, I worked in a hotel washing dishes, doing room service. I worked for the city of Mount Vernon in the summer doing cleaning up parks. That was before you became Jeff Young, touring, A-listed touring musician. Yeah, but even, even between, like now I'm, I'm teaching the Musicians Institute because there's a lot of uh, periods where I'm not working as a touring musician. How does that make you feel? Well, I feel like I've got something to give, particularly to a younger generation that can learn some of the things I've learned about how to listen while they play and while they practice, particularly in regards to playing with other people. Because if you're playing, doing a recording session or you're playing somebody else's song, it takes a little while to realize that the things you identify with, you have to kind of make the difference. It only happens with experience that the things that you like to play might not be necessarily good for the song. And that if it means you play less and it works for the song, that's what you should do rather than impose your will on something that doesn't work. But you have toured with Sting, Jackson Brown, Alanis Morissette, Tracy Chapman, Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that when you do something, either in the studio or on tour, they don't tell you what to do? You're expected to come up with well, well, what they no, want? No, no, no. A lot of times they know very sure of what, what they want. Some people are more open to what you might bring to it. I mean, Sting was, was incredibly open. Because there's something about being a jazz-oriented musician, just like Donald Fagan, that's different from working with people like Tracy Chapman or Jackson Brown, who have only really played their own music. makes a big difference. Um, whereas people like Sting and Donald Fagan have studied other people's music quite a bit and came up with their own version of, of the things they learned. And they also moonlighted playing for other artists before they became successful with their own things. And so... There's something about that that means that the record, the sense I got from, from Sting and Donald Fagan, being, being the writers and the arrangers, is that the record may, may 
be more of a version of a song than the total final biblical proof of, of the only way that song can be done. So I think they're a little bit more open to an interpretation based on a certain musician's style. So what, what do you bring to the table? So you're most famous, I think, um, for the Hammond B3. You're playing with that rather than a piano player, classic piano player. Well, piano too. What I, what I bring is a sense of rhythm and blues. Right. Which is about playing the right parts in a rhythm that harmonically agrees to what's going on in the right place in the midst of bass and drums and guitars. Something that's right, possibly less, less than more. But that works, trying to find the right part that works. Which musician that you toured with did you feel most comfortable musically with? Where did you think you were the best fit musically? Probably Steely there. And, of course, what you also bring to the table is a great voice because you're an amazing singer in your own right, but you can harmonise. So I guess when people are looking to, to get a band together, not only do you have the musicianship, but you can sing. Because, I mean, that's a, they get two two guys for the price of one. Yeah, I don't always get paid twice. <laughs> Do you think you should? Um, <laughs> sometimes yes, and sometimes, I, you know, I didn't in, in the Steely Dan sense. But it's not really an issue for me as long as I'm enjoying what's going on. Right. I find that fascinating because I can't do it. Well, I can't play anything anyway, but how do you to do two things at the same time? It's extraordinary to me that you can be playing with your hands, something different with one, your left hand to your right hand and singing as well in a different, um, not different key, but in, in harmonising. It's just amazing to me that anyone can do that. Well, it depends on the, um, the concentration it takes to play a part on the keyboard that's locked in with the rhythm versus the... Um, usually when it's a background part, it's easier, but when I write songs that I know I'm going to perform, what I write into it is I've got to know that I can sing and play this without being too too preoccupied, knowing that I could be distracted in a way that might make me forget the words if the keyboard part is, is too demanding. Right. Which musicians do you look up to? Well, I feel like Ray Charles and Nat King Cole were the best piano player singers. Nat King Cole was an incredible piano. Okay. He was, and he was so good at it. If you want proof, you have I'll to... take your word for it. <laughs> no, but he had a he had a TV show for a year, which was very hard to happen since we're talking about a really racist era. I mean, Nat King Cole influenced Sinatra, particularly influenced Ray Charles, but he kind of like, and he had a TV show where they didn't have boom stands. He'd be playing upright piano with the straight stand, looking to the camera. And the piano seemed to be easy for him. And he could sing the melody of the song with heart, almost as if he wasn't playing piano at the same time, to a degree that was, like, amazing. I've since come to realize that, that Elton John is particularly good. Elton John, I discovered, discovered when I was Sting, because we did a benefit where Elton John was just playing piano and singing. And I was kind of blown away with how good he was. Particularly, you know, I didn't know that because any other time I'd seen him, he'd have the crazy glasses on, dressing up like Liberace, and, you know, to fill the big rooms, he was putting on a show. But if you heard him just play piano and sing, you realize that nobody could play piano for his own voice as good as he could. And that his music is kind of a, what he wrote was a distillation of things he learned 
from New Orleans piano players, Leon Russell, and different people. He, I think he's he, he's he's really good. What about the the youngsters? Anyone that strikes you as being super talented? Well, Skylar turned me on to to James Blake. That's your son, Skylar. Yeah, Skylar turned me on to James Blake, who, in a modern way, and with technology, can sing in the most relaxed head voice. I don't, you know, he's probably not what he's doing keyboard wise is simpler, and some of it's probably sequenced. He's really good. Donny Hathaway was amazing. Stevie Wonder's always been really good. Mm. But um, where I start as a writer and as a player is doing something before you go into the studio that stands on its own before production turns into something else. You're you're still making records, CDs, in a time when it is argued that there is no music industry. Even even the big touring gigs, they're not happening like they used to. Um, But that hasn't stopped you from putting out another CD. This is, which number is this in your... That's um, probably more like eight, but nobody I know can quit being a musician successfully. Yeah. Even some friends of mine who have gone away from it and, and got another career wind up coming back. You know, um, it's really hard to give to give it up. Well, once you've been doing it for a while, and your, your identification is somehow. So you never you never once thought, what's the point? Nobody's buying records. What's the point in making another one? For me. I'm trying to take the things that I've learned with my vision. And I've learned a lot from Jackson Brown from the point of view of how to take something personal and making it something that other people can read their stories into as well. And also, it freed me up. That's right, to connect with the listener. Yeah. You want to resonate. Oh, gosh, yes, I know what he's saying. I felt that way. I've been through that. And that's that's harder to do, but it's also more interesting for me to, to pursue than say, I mean, sometimes... I get down on myself because there are piano players who are really fluent at things that I'm not. Like, like who? Like, I know around here, like Jeff Babco or Larry Goldings, who studied either Herbie Hancock or Bill Evans, Keith Jarrett, and they're just bet, bet, better piano players. But they aren't singers. When you sing, you realize, in some ways as a piano player, you don't have to work that hard. I mean, you want to have the access to certain harmonic things which give you choices, the knowledge that any harmonic sequence has a lot of options of, of reharm, reharmonizations that you can use in your writing or in your playing. So I know a lot about that, but still, whether I'm playing for myself or playing with Julia Fordham or playing with Jackson, Tracy Chapman, whoever, it's not about, if you're playing too loud or too much, you can't really listen. <laughs> right. you, it gets into an area where you're, you're trying to satisfy yourself. And if you listen back to it, you realize that. Are you very, when you put an album out, like your new album, are you, do, you, do you have a core group of people? Like I know with my writing, I've got a trusted small group that I will show it to, you know, draft, final drafts. Then, of course, they still have to be rewritten. Have you got a group of people that you play yourself and say, right, tell me what, what you really think? Do you I've mean got a that? couple. I've got a couple of really good musician friends. Bass player and the drummer. Bass player being Jorgen Carlson, and <clears throat> the drummer being Eric Aldinius, who are also really good in their home studio. That can do a lot for me without charging me a lot of money, because it would be prohibitive. And I'm not as good at um, recording as they are. The technical side, you mean? Technical side, 
But what goes along with that... So they've worked on this album with you? They've worked on just about every album I've, mm -hmm. I've done. But what's this album called? Let's talk about this one. Uh, this album is called Memory and Hope. And what made you write it? Well, I had already begun to think, and Sue will tell you that. That's your that, wife? That, yes, Susanna. And I know I married the right woman because she could have easily talked me out of it as far as the money spending goes. But being a creative person herself, she understands the need and the desire. I wrote a couple of songs. I had an idea that I had since my college days that was based on this, this kind of hooky thing based on fifths and the piano, which was something I came up with when I was particularly interested in, in trying to figure out the essence of what McCoy Tyner did, which rose out of him trying to hear himself when he, above Elvin Jones, who was the loud drummer with John Coltrane. His, his piano playing changed, playing really loud fifths on the bottom of piano. Anyway, it's something I used to practice, and I came up with an idea, and I had this around since college. I never thought it could be a song, but then I started thinking about the history of music as I understand it in a way that I could explain to my son first, and then, and then I turned it into a song, and lyrics are, um, our, fathers, our fathers still rock, but the countdown has begun. The new kids on the block have guitars to carry on. Pop art, hip hop, Facebook, the world is now a neighborhood with more caring and wealth sharing, hope for the greater good. So what is that track called? Memory and Hope. That is, that's the, the title track of the album. Yeah, and also says something about, says something about what I remember or things I learned musically in my generation and I hope that it will carry on.
you talk about your your generation, but it seems to me that you, you were lucky enough to play and tour as a touring musician in the glory years when there was money for touring and you played with the A-listers, so you got paid the real money. Yeah. Um, is that true to say you played the, the, the best of times? Yeah, I think so. But I should say that one of the things I learned, which has a lot to do with the music business, is that there was more money to be made in rock and roll and with certain white singer-songwriters than you can make playing rhythm and blues. I'd say, are you saying that it's the music business is racist? Always has been. Obviously, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean that in a detrimental sense. I'm just saying it's that, not a good way. That, <laughs> I'm. Can I just? Not, I don't want to. Because to me, as an outsider, um, and, I, and I, it, 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 it's always struck me that there was less racism amongst musicians. Yeah, I'm, not they, talking, I'm not talking about the racism between musicians. I'm talking about how the business works. Okay. And the money that's available. This is the thing, okay. And you can look this up. I will. Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, Little Richard were not played on national radio when they were when they were in their prime. Yeah. There was a divide, you know. As a matter of fact, people like Pat Boone were singing Chuck Berry songs. But there was a feeling that you couldn't sell it may have even have started with, with Elvis Presley, who can I would think would have been very influenced by black church music and the rhythm and blues. Well, where Eric he, where he grew Clapton up. brought Muddy Waters and Buddy Guy and the like, and didn't he? And BB King, he so really did the, so did the Beatles. Yeah. Oh right. Okay. You know, I there's know something that. about the Be- one of the reasons why the Beatles was such a good band is that they had that gig in Hamburg, mm-hmm. playing for I think the British and American soldiers. I mean, Paul McCartney can sing like Little Richard. And at a time, he had to cover those songs. And that carried on into his writing when they started to write. And there were certain things that Chuck Berry established on guitar um, that that the Beatles learned from, the Stones learned from, the Animals. Led Zeppelin turned, turned that stuff, particularly the Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf stuff, but they've been turning, turning, turning. Uh, basically, took it further. But all, all of the white and, musicians, and the, like, and, they, and, they've and, been quick to credit. Yeah, I'm not. Guys. I'm not saying they were being racist. I'm saying they were. They were genuinely interested in the music. What I'm talking about the industry is, is the industry and how some of those black musicians were only making money locally, whether it be Mississippi, whether it be uh, yeah, Mississippi, New Orleans, Chicago, or New York. Is that still how it is? It's not. Well, there's uh, no money for anybody. Well, the thing is, you can say now that there's not an R&B thing like it was. In a sense, hip hop changed all that. And right. to me, to me, you know, I'm not really a fan of of a lot of hip hop. But it's the first time I've seen that black musicians can be really mediocre and make a lot of money. <laughs> it's finally equality. <laughs> yeah, you know. So there's an equality in that because I don't know if I should say this, but. Go on. Be brave. I, I, Sting said to me once, cause he, and he really wanted to know what I thought about things like this. He said to me, he said, tell me something, man. Why is it that Mary J. Blige or Puff Daddy would rather give me half of their publishing rather than coming up with their own stuff? 
He was trying to figure it out. And I didn't know how to answer that because I hadn't really thought about it. I didn't, hadn't thought about that much at the time. What I think now is that every generation of black musicians create something new. Not totally new, it comes from things of the past, but when the technology allowed musicians to take snippets of the past and turn it into something new, they didn't necessarily have to learn, learn how to play or sing those things that it was based on. There's a certain, there's a, I'm not diminishing the skill that it takes to write a hip hop tune or whatnot, but one of the skills isn't the kind of singing that came from James Brown or Sam Cooke or Aretha Franklin before them. Now, some of them know how to do that, like Mary J. Blige. He was, even he was trying to figure out, because I think Sting was very influenced Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis, and Bill Withers in his writing, right? I doubt, seriously, if any of them made the kind of money in their careers as Sting has. And, but isn't that and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying, and, and I just think that's a fact. I'm not faulting, I'm not faulting anybody, I think. Well, let me, let me say it's, it's accepted wisdom that people who are going to make a, a big living still, um, when people aren't buying so many records, are the people that can perform live and that tour. And so your Stings, your Jackson Browns, your Steely Dans, they're still in the game yeah. because, of course, because they're brilliant and have great tunes, but they tour and put on a great show. So Elton John, all of, all of these people, it, it is about the touring. So the guys that you mentioned, I mean, maybe they didn't well, no, you know, I mean, get you the, know, the Chuck, funding. Chuck, Chuck, no, they didn't get the funding. Chuck Berry, Money Waters, Little Richard were very good at performing and playing okay. the songs too. Yeah. Like really good. Part of their career was extended and expanded by the fact that, you know, Mick and Keith or Sting or the Beatles gave gave back or, or made people aware of who their influences were. Right. So you know, so what I'm saying you know, these the, the successful white rock and roll musicians were doing it from an honest place. They weren't trying to rip people off. But the money's always been on the side, I think since Elvis, of, of white musicians. And you think still? I think that changed, changed a bit with hip hop, because now, Oh yeah. I was listening to, Sue and I, my wife and I were listening to the, checking out the country music awards. And I'm listening to it, and I heard several songs where the verses sounded like hip hop verses. <laughs> you know, so, it's not it's it's not racist among musicians, because everybody learns there are things to learn. Musicians will pick up whatever they can to learn from, especially if if it's has something to do with pop music. Pop music being the thing that pays the most. I don't think Bob <laughs> Dylan wrote "Blowing in the Wind" to make money, but that changed. That had an influence on the industry in terms of before that. It was all boy meets girl and love song. Well, that, he was the first of the, making things political, wasn't he? We were making statements. But also that influenced Sam Cooke. Race, racism among musicians doesn't really exist. And you can't blame anybody for going for the money if they know it's there, white or black. Let's just say that. Okay. But I know that Blowing in the Wind influenced Sam Cooke the right of change is going to come. Wow, another great song. Talking of great songs, let's play another track from your new album. 
Which one would you like to play? I play a song called I Keep a Place Here. I'll keep a place here just in case I need a change of pace to rest my leg from this marathon race. I'll keep a place here. Yeah, I'll keep a place here just in case. I want to barbecue on my fire escape Watch the city as it drifts through space Just in case Now I've been told this deed I hold Is worth this weight in gold but why would I ever part with my soul or my heart? I'll keep a place here just in case that cloud of trouble starts to rain. In case heartache needs these keys again. I'll keep a place here just in case We were talking about black artists, African-American artists who'd managed to cross over from R&B to pop. These days, and, and, and for as long as I can remember, there's, there's been a lot of, of white rock and roll or singer-songwriter um, performers who have crossed over into R&B, you know. Um, from where? From, from American, you know, it starts with Elvis. It starts with Elvis, but in modern times, you know, there was George Michael, there's Sam Smith, there's... All these people who are carrying on in the R&B tradition, whereas more black artists are... Um, hip-hop has influenced everything. And it kind of um, is this current current generation's form of R&B. And who's, is anyone crossed over? Who's crossed over? Probably a few, you know. There's maybe Run DMC, especially when they did the collaboration with Aerosmith. And it's been a lot of... It crosses over everywhere hip-hop does, which is the beauty of it. But it seemed to me that rock and roll and R&B... Previous to that were, were these two separate clubs, you know. And if you were black, you know, you couldn't really be considered a rock and roll act. And the exceptions are Jimi Hendrix, Michael Jackson, and Prince. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm saying that there would be no rock and roll if it wasn't for the, the R&B pioneers, right? Um, and a lot of it started with guitar becoming popular and taking over from the big band era. But the soldiers, the American and the British soldiers in World War II, started sharing music and songs, and I think that's when England started to embrace a certain black American rhythm and blues that really most of white America didn't embrace. I'm talking about Muddy Waters, Chuck, 
Willie Dixon and Howlin' Wolf oh. and Little Richard and the Beatles and the Stones, the Animals in England loved this, this black American music and they, they studied it and it influenced their writing when they started writing songs later on. And that came before, and it kind of reintroduced this music that had always been going on in America to, to all of America. It just wasn't really that known or there were white artists in the popular vein who were, who were singing some of those songs. So talking of, of discrimination, as we have been, would you say there's also discrimination against men and women within the music industry? Oh, yeah, there certainly is. It's, it's, and, and it has to do with getting paid. <laughs> it's across the board. It's everywhere, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, 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 it is. You know, And it's not OK. It's not OK. It's never been OK. It, it doesn't really make sense for a person of colour or a woman to get paid a lot less money for the same job in any field. It's just wrong, but it's been going on for a long time. And do you, but do you think there's a shift that's changing? There's lots of shifts changing, and and I think that's good. But I also think that um, maybe maybe the, oh, I don't want to create a conspiracy, but there are people who who don't want it to change. And people <laughs> like who? I don't know. There there are people behind the scenes who've been been mixed up at the top for a long time who. Don't want to see money money change hands in any kind of equal kind of way. So do you do you think that there are cases where, with say, with management or, or agents, if they can get away with paying women less in the members of the band, they will. You damn right. Yeah, well, and I think it's 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 probably happened. Or there's that thing where, like, I remember auditioning for for Mariah Carey because Richard T wasn't available, and I didn't get the gig because basically I'm <laughs> not Richard T. But there was something about her manager, husband, you know, uh, Tommy Mottola, that was was running a tight ship, and on everything with her, it seemed like it was, it goes in the area of of power and property, and he was a record, a big record company guy. But um, what are you saying about him that he didn't want to pay? Well, what I'm what saying, what I'm, well, sorry, maybe, well, maybe I didn't answer the question, but there's something about his position of power that was going to do the right thing for her because it was it was also something he was going to benefit from. Later on, she broke away. The question is, is why did she break away? Either she wasn't getting paid the money she thought she was or she wasn't being true to her nature in terms of what she liked to sing and she, who she identified with. Mm. And it probably, it probably, it almost cost her, her career, but somehow she, she came out of it okay. Right. But it had to be hard. I'm talking about the the um, the difference between rock and roll and R&B is money. There's really no difference among musicians and their desire to do one or the other. It's up for grabs, and people should do it what what they feel like or what they love, you know. But the business of who gets paid what is always a bit sketchy. But but it's the little I know about the industry and money. I mean, I remember in the good old days of which you were a part, and I don't know if this applied to you, but the, the A-lister touring artists like your Stings, there was a time when they were paying the musicians 10 grand a week. Now, I've heard stories through someone who knows someone who where people like, say, Christina Aguilera, who you consider to be an A-lister artist, they're, paying, they're going on tour and paying 1500 a, a week to their musicians. Yeah. That's an, an enormous drop. Well, I knew somebody uh, who was 
who was hiring people for the um, the Jackson Victory Tour when 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 Michael got together with his brothers to do a tour, and there were some people getting paid really low money, you know, at five hundred because five hundred a week, yeah, to play with Michael Jackson, yeah. I mean, it, it was the Jacksons. Oh, the Jacksons. Sorry, you yeah. know. Okay. But part of it is that some people think it's like it's worth the money just to say yeah. that you did that. You know, somebody told a story about Salvador Dali eating at a restaurant, and the check came and he just he just made a picture, <laughs> and he figured that was worth. It. <laughs> he, said, he said, "That's that's that's it. Did that's, he get that's away worth, with it? That's worth that's uh, worth what the meal costs." Wow. You know. Yeah. But yeah, that sort of thing goes on for, and but also the business has changed. You know, the record company, back then you had to go into a proper recording studio to make a record that's a, that with, with the proper hallway to do that. And they did the promotion. And some of that is justified. And also people like Christina Aguilera or Lady Gaga have big entourages, Beyonce. They've got 100 or 200 people out there. Really? Yeah, they're pay, they're playing stadiums, but they've got dancers, they've got video people, and musically, because of of how of the show, most of the music is on tracks. Really? It's not even being played live because to dance when you see all that acrobatic yes, dancing, yeah, I and, it's and not possible to sing. It's it's hard as hell to do all. Is that those... why you don't do it? <laughs> well, I tr- I tried. I auditioned for a club back in New York, a woman named Jenny Burton, who at the time was. Anybody from there knew that she was every bit as good as like Whitney Houston, but she never got a record deal. Gorgeous woman, gorgeous voice, and with these songs, it was like twelve singers, and it was this this kind of. It wasn't like athletic choreography, but you had to know these moves and the lyrics and the melody like seamlessly. You couldn't read it visually. There was nowhere to put a music stand, in it, and it wasn't going to work. And that taught me how hard it is. So imagine having to do a lot of athletic stuff. And okay, you've got a mic attached to your face, but that's not a big deal. But it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard, but that's why you have to appreciate the great song and dance, man. But even in singing in the rain, you know, Gene Kelly is not right. is not singing while he's dancing in that film. It's well, then, uh, talking of, of discrimination, there's that famous line about Fred Astaire and... and... Uh, Ginger Rogers that she did the same as him except backwards and in high heels and for half the money. That's probably true. There's something about a certain level of, of power in the industry that makes people feel like they could demand certain things or or maybe they're always that way and they, and they weren't. There's a difference between between team players and like alpha dogs. And alpha dogs don't don't mind uh, have, having you do shit that you're not going to get. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in business, so God, there's got to be all these stories coming out with women and actresses and people, you know. Wonder is people didn't speak on this before, because it's always been going on. Yeah, times are changing. The women are rising. Yeah, we're all getting paid less money, so I know. <laughs> we'll see. It's, I know it's a level playing field, and everybody's getting paid crap, yeah. or not at all. I mean, there's so many people in creative fields who are working for nothing. I'm not moaning, that's the way it is, but crikey, we need to win the lottery. I'm going to buy you a lottery ticket as yeah. soon as we finished, yeah. <laughs> Keep calm and chat on. Give us another track, please. It's called Not a Dry Eye in the House, which I wrote with Maggie after a conversation we had about Robin Williams. At the time, Robin Williams had just passed away, and we were talking about 
these really funny people who had, we talked about the idea that maybe the funniest people we know, whether it be Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, had like a dark side they were trying to deal with. And, a depressive uh, side. Yeah. And so we were wondering what that was about, especially when, it, when a, someone like Robin was so extremely funny. First time I noticed how good he was was when he sang one of his stand-ups. He sang a Bruce Springsteen f- song called Fire in the voice of Elma Fudd, <laughs> which I just thought was genius. Grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. Happily, pretty a lot, a lot happier than my view of it. My generally, I think that any person who grows up with both their parents in a house has a good chance of being happy. Right. Yeah. Now, your parents were musical. My father had a great voice, and it was my father who introduced my brother and I 
to the greatness of R&B because he didn't get too far in school. I think he might have only gone to the eighth grade. And he was in the war for a bit, and he came back and with my mother moved up to Mount Vernon from Alabama. They had already had a house in the South, which they sold. Once they settled in Mount Vernon, my father started working as a cook in this hotel in Bronxville, Westchester, New York, which is a couple of towns away from Mount Vernon. It's a big hotel called the Hotel Gramerton. And on his off days, he liked to go down to Harlem, and he would bring me and my brother to hear, man, we heard everybody. We heard James Brown in his, in his prime, heard Jackie Wilson, B.B. King, comedians like Red Fox and Moms Mabley, Billy Stewart, uh, Joe Tex. And there were variety shows that showed a film and had an MC comedian and had the main act. And I can't remember there ever being a bad, a bad show there. So who did, who did you first hear that you thought, I want to do that? I want to be a musician? And why piano? Well, I think it had something to do, it really wasn't piano, it was organ. What happened was, by the time I started playing, As well. yeah, we were trying to play rock. Cream, Cream was happening. Santana was happening. Jimi Hendrix had happened. First, we started going to the Apollo with my father. And later on, we started playing. And I was still a bit underage. What instrument did your brother play? My brother played drums. Okay. And we were were playing. My parents had a basement where he was able to play his drums. Somehow, I started taking organ lessons in not a very disciplined way with a chord organ that sounded like an accordion in the box. (laughs) But... My aunt used to play these Jimmy Smith records. And then I heard that same organ coming from the English bands that would play the Fillmore, like Traffic, or oh, there were all these bands that were, that were blues-based bands, four-piece bands with organ, guitar, bass, and drums. And also, when that I figured out... when joined I joined f- by Ziggy the Dog, yeah. the world's biggest dog. When I figured out that an organ could match the volume of a guitar. And most of the guitar players were, were playing loud even then. So I've just had a thought, and names just come into my head. Billy Preston, you must be... I mean, he did what you do, basically. Yeah, but I didn't appreciate the organ players I appreciated first. came from England. You know, there were guys like Keith Emerson. Oh, of course, yeah. Or Brian Auger, particularly Steve Winwood. And then later on, I realized that a lot of those guys had learned their skills listening to black musicians from America. And as a matter of fact, what I think happened, or what I've learned happened, was that the British found out about these black America, this black American music first before white America. But how, how did they find it? Through the, through the, through the uh, soldiers, American soldiers. Oh, okay. American soldiers and, and, and the British soldiers. American soldiers who either brought their guitars over or their record collections. I think one of the first importers of black American music was in Liverpool. Did not know that. Yeah, and and you can read how Brian Jones, Mick and Keith really did a lot of homework trying to learn how to learn about what Muddy Waters was doing. You know, the Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon stuff. Um, and either covered those songs or later did their own versions of those songs in a different form. I mean, Led Zeppelin were, were almost a cover band, but they changed. They were, they were better musicians. They were really good musicians. They were session musicians who realized, who basically did their own versions 
of things that they love that came from um, Black America, well, and they weren't they weren't doing that to to to, to rip anybody off. I don't think it was an they just homage. Loved this music. Yeah, it was respect, deep respect. And and when when they could turn it into their own thing, because let's just start with the idea that any good idea in music and, li- and literature, if you understand it, can be turned into another good. A variation could come. You know, if you if you know if you understand and have a feeling for. Let's have another track from the album. I do a version of John Fogarty's "Born in a Bayou." Reharmonized and rearranged. Oh, I I love your harmonies. And it wasn't so much that I was a big John Fogarty or Creedence Clearwater fan, but I loved the lyrics. What he was saying in his song, song "Born in the Bayou." would you give to someone who wants a young person who wants to be a musician and of course this is going to be easy for you to answer because your eldest son Skylar is a fantastic bass player I mean really good that which must be easier when they're good can you imagine as a parent if your kid's terrible and they still want to be a musician may I ask you what advice you've given Skylar well he doesn't always take of course he doesn't he's smarter (laughs) than I am let's just say that but what he doesn't have is experience he works possibly as hard or harder than I ever have working on his his songs and his production. Songwriting is as much production as it is writing. It's particularly if you're trying to find your voice. What I can't tell, there's something about that I mistrust 
about technology ruling songwriting and the ease of everything. Like, there's something about, let's say it's, there's, there's a digital revolution that happened, started to happen in the 90s, and it runs everything now. So does Skylar have a grasp of the technology that you don't He's have? He's got a very strong grasp. In fact, two of the songs on my album he produced. Oh, wow, cool. I didn't realize that. Memory and Hope and the second track, I Know Where Your Heart Lives. And also, I Keep a Place Here, because we have a little studio in the back. You, has he finished college now? He will be finished. And t- tell us where he went. He went somewhere He went to fancy. NYU. Went to, to study? Really, music business, to get a fine arts in, in, um, in music, which is different from the one I have. So you never once said to him, don't, don't do it, it's too hard these days? I couldn't tell him that any more than my parents could tell me that, although I'm sure they were worried about whether or not he'd be able to make a living. Did your parents know that you did make a living? They, it wasn't apparent that that was going to happen at the time. No, but they, they lived to see you yeah. achieve success. What I worry about with Skylar is that it's, it's easier and cheaper to make a record, but it's also the way things are set up and with streaming and a digital age, there's almost an institutionalized cheating going on because I don't see the revenue for this new generation that my generation uh, enjoy. And so what I would say, which I think is true, the more skills you have as a musician, the better, because if you, you almost need about five, player, singer, writer, producer, um, and then with social media, um, business. And you almost have to have all those things going either all at once or in different degrees. That's for all creative yeah. outlets, I think. But, but so, it's also skills. It's, it's, it's um, computer skills, too. Right. I'm so happy that you took this time to talk to me and share your music with us. How can people get hold of your latest CD? Well, they're all on CD Baby, okay. which is like an online music store. Well, I think your music speaks for, yourself, for itself and your voice. Your voice is... It's one of my favourite voices of all time. I'm right up there with Sting, all those people. I love Thanks. hearing your voice. You're a great singer. I wish I had their money. Yeah. <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all? Well, and, I'm not, and I don't want people to believe that just because I'm black is, is a difference, but it, everybody's journey is different. And I make this music for myself, but I've learned <clears throat> many things from Sting, Jackson Brown, particularly Jackson Brown, um, Donald Fagan. You, but how many years have you played with, with Jackson? Because you, you still do. Yeah. You still tour with him. Is it, is it 20? It might be 25. I've oh been working with him since, since 93. Wow. And he gets me, I get him in really, um, although in some ways, in a lot of ways, I probably have more in common with Donald Fagan as far as certain rhythm and blues and jazz harmonic leanings. Jackson has done as much for me, besides my father, than any man. He really Musically has. and... Yeah, and support-wise. And support right, he's, a good, he's one of the good ones, isn't he? He's, he's really one, he's like a saint. Yeah. He's he a is. good man. He is a good man. Yeah. So are you. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> Thanks, my friend. You're welcome. We simply must applaud them, the chatbot 
podcast with Claire Fordham. Keep calm and chat on. You can learn more about Jeff Young on his website, jeffyoungmusic.com, and download his latest CD, Memories, Hopes and Dreams, from cdbaby.com. I'm liking the chat and music combo, which is just as well because superb singer-songwriter Judith Owen has said yes to being a guest on the chat, and the legendary, not just in my household, but around the world, Julia Fordham will be chatting about her autumn British tour with Beverly Craven and Judy Zook. Julia's episode will air at the end of April. I'll be sure to ask Julia who is looking after her daughter and dog while she's away. My guest on the next episode of The Chat with Claire Fordham is screenwriter Stephen Rogers, who wrote and produced I, Tonya. Stephen is smart and very funny. You'll love him, I promise. I recorded the interview with Stephen before the Oscar nominations came out. There were nods for I, Tonya's Margot Robbie and Alison Janney, but not for Best Film or in any screenwriting categories. That must have hurt. You know the drill, people. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with everyone you know, including complete strangers on social media. Until next time, keep calm and chat on. We simply must applaud them The Chat Podcast with Claire Borden Keep calm and chat on The Chat with Claire Fordham is an M-squared production.